Um, so, Don, let me turn it over to you then. Good study or great study? Great study. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Free Associations, and this is going to be a particularly fun episode of Free Associations this week. This is our uh, Hold the Mirror Up to Thyself episode, otherwise known as the Those Who Live in Glass Houses episode, where we're actually going to talk about ourselves for once. But uh, this is Free Associations for the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by trying to fold a fitted sheet. You any good at that? <laughs> I can. Oh, I, that, absolutely that is not. Like a contour sheet. I'm completely incapable. I'm uh, Matt you, have to, you have to turn one corner inside out and slip it into I the just, opposite corner I just and roll, then you fold it. Roll it in a ball and push it to the back of the oh, closet. That works. Hope, huh. hope no one sees it. It's very Japanese of you. Anyway, I am Matt Fox, professor of epidemiology and global health. I am here, as always, with Donthea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Good morning, Matt. Hi, Matt. And we are here, as always, in the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, that is Boston University School of Public Health Resource Hub for Lifelong Learning. You can find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. Uh, and also a quick plug for the Population Health Exchange's Summer Institute, which is going on this summer. And you can go to Population Health Exchange's website to find out more information. But we've got courses uh, in things like meta-analysis and SAS that you can go ahead and sign up for. So go ahead and take a look on the website. Those are the weeks of June 11th and June 18th. And as a reminder, uh, we'd love it if you would go ahead and rate us on iTunes and all your other major podcast sites, as that will help people find us. I also wanted to take a second to to give a thank you to our listeners. So we are at the point now where we're getting somewhere between 600 and 700 700 downloads per episode, uh, which is way more than we, I think, ever anticipated when we started this. But now... From 70 different countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I think we want to get a thousand. That is great. So, so that's our, our challenge to so our listeners. The, the down low or the downloads. The de- oh. Oh, so uh, okay then. I, I but I do have a question. Uh, so I don't know if you guys saw this. It looked to me like we got twenty three downloads from Sierra Leone last week. Excellent. So if you are out there in Sierra Leone or you're the one who downloaded Sierra Leone, write in. Let us know what's going on. Give us a roar. Yeah. Oh. So. Now onto the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to try to live by what we said back in episode one, where we noted that you could look at any of our studies and find just as many things wrong with them. Or more. Or more. And so we are going to look at a study that Don and I were both involved in, which looked at whether or not treatment of childhood pneumonia in resource-limited settings could be done safely and effectively as outpatient treatment instead of hospital-based treatment. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we are going to talk about what you do when you have a source of bias in a study that you think is going to prevent you from getting published. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that have us laughing out loud or completely dumbfounded in amazement. Mm-hmm. So let's get into it. So segment one, we're going to do uh, an article that we actually published and we are going to critique it. So we, uh, Don and I were involved in a study that looked at uh, treatment uh, for severe pneumonia in Pakistan. The title of the study was the Ambulatory Short Course High Dose Oral Amoxicillin for Treatment of Severe Pneumonia in Children, a Randomized Equivalency Trial. The study was published in The Lancet in 2008, and the first author was Dr. Tabish Hazir of the Children's Hospital of the Pakistan Medical Institute of Medical Sciences in Islamabad. And I would just say that um, since we know the, the, many of all the authors of the study, since they were involved, uh, one of the others, uh, authors was, who did a lot of work on the study was Leanne Fox. So if you're listening, Leanne, uh, well, thanks for no listening. No relation. But hey there, it's important Leanne. to point out that there is no relation. We got all, I got, we had so much trouble when she was here at BU, uh, especially when we would teach together in the same class. Because it was assumed that you were husband and wife. The students, the students always asked. Brother ask. and sister. So the students always asked, are you, are you related? They would always whisper. So I would get up at the beginning of the class and I would say, 
I just want to make it clear. I'm introducing that. I want to make it clear we're not related in any way. And they would continue to whisper. What about then, Michael J? And then one, no, definitely not. And then one of them raised their hand and they said, okay, you're not related, but are you married? <laughs> Which I assumed was covered in not related, but <laughs> apparently is not. So we're not related in any way. It's a bunch of sea lawyers. Anyway, um, so if this was uh, a television show, I think now we would have to do the... Um, the uh, the music that indicates we're going back in time, but I don't have any of that music. Do we here. have to declare a conflict Do of we interest have, on this one? Yeah, yeah, a huge conflict of interest. Let's just get it out front. Can I interrupt just because I'm I'm curious? Like uh, this is one of those papers where there's a lot of authors. So who actually wrote wrote the paper? Who 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 was the uh, the point person? I think it was mo- it was mostly Tabish Me Kazi. I uh-huh. thought it was I thought it was Ghost written by Big Big Pneumonia. Yeah. <laughs> no. 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 You did it yourselves. Um, okay, so um, there were no headlines for this one because this goes back to 2008. And uh, besides, it had to do with childhood pneumonia. No one pays much attention to that, unfortunately, as much as they should. <sighs> but it is worth noting that pneumonia uh, is one of the biggest killers of children worldwide and probably should be getting a lot more attention. And we have been wanting to do this as a podcast for a long time, uh, not because we like to talk about ourselves, which of course we do, but rather we do want to practice what we preach back in episode one. And uh, so. If, uh, if, if we can at least find the flaws in our own studies, I think we're doing a, a good job. So let's get into it. So Don, you want to you wanna walk us through this, this study, what it is sure. these, uh, these folks did? <laughs> sure, whoever, whoever sure. they are. Um, so th- this is a second in a series of studies that we did on, um, on, on the topic of pneumonia, where what we were trying to do is take the WHO guidelines um, for the, ma- the diagnosis and management of pneumonia and, um, and, and that requires for this particular kind of pneumonia, which we call severe pneumonia, which is, which is um, determined by the presence of lower chest wall indrawing in children. And it's, it's really the, the presence of lower chest wall indrawing is, is a manifestation of how hard the child is actually breathing. But this series of studies was looking at how, um, can, can, can we provide enough evidence to change the guidelines of the WHO so that these children with severe pneumonia no longer have to get parenteral antibiotics because there's added costs, there's added complications, there's added burden to the family. And if we can show that oral amoxicillin is equivalent to intravenous therapy um, in this group of children, then there's um, a, a major benefit to this. So and the intravenous therapy would have to be generally given... At a hospital. Right. Correct. Right. So, so the intent was to be able to actually do community-based diagnosis and treatment with an oral medication for these kids with severe pneumonia. So this study was preceded by a very similar study where we had two arms, and we, it was a, a non-blinded randomized control trial. And um, one arm got the standard of care, which was parenteral antibiotics. The other arm got oral amoxicillin. They both remained in the hospital for the duration of the episode of pneumonia, and we showed that they were, in fact, equivalent. And so what we, um, what we had hoped would be that this would be sufficient evidence to change the guidelines um, by, the, by the WHO, but they said, no, it's not sufficient because it's not generalizable because both, of the, both arms of, of, um, of, of, of the children were um, treated in hospital and they got supportive care, and so it's, it's not generalizable. So we then designed this study to try to address that issue. I almost feel like, as the only person in this room who had nothing to do with the study, maybe I should describe it. Why don't, why don't you do that? Yeah, let's right. do that. The, um, as Don was saying, the basic question is, you, you know, since you can treat severe pneumonia with oral antibiotics versus parenteral antibiotics in a hospital setting, and they seem to work about the same as each other, can you take the next logical step forward and, and treat with oral antibiotics out of the hospital, which would be so helpful and practical and simple and cheaper and, you know, easier on the families and so many reasons it would be, you know, very helpful if you could do this. But based on the earlier study that Don was describing, the, the, the WHO was not comfortable in making that leap. So now we're you're going to do it again. So um, this is the No Shot Study, which is a, one of the cleverest acronyms, oh, I have to say. It is my... my, my How did uh, you come up with that? Your tour de force. That is my most important mm. contribution to the study, I believe. Because it really so describes wait. what you did. Okay, so... You, no went, sh- you went online, didn't you? Shots you went to, versus no, 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 you went no. to the acronym app. I did not. This one, this was before the acronym app. I made this up myself. Don, can you even tell me what No Shot stands for? No. No, because the point of the study was to not give kids shots. So I thought this was pretty clever. It was the new outpatient short course home oral therapy study. 
It's brilliant. Oh, me. Tortured. Oh, me. Right here. Right here. Well, anyway, so in a nutshell, what, what, they, what they did in this study is they um, evaluated children who came in with, with some sort of respiratory syndrome, looking for kids who met the WHO definition of severe pneumonia, which is cough plus chest wall in drawing plus or minus rapid respiratory rate, as I read from your, Correct. your definition. So they didn't, you know, they excluded the children who had like, you know, mild pneumonia because the WHO recommends that you just watch and wait and you don't need antibiotics. And so you would not need to be in this trial for that. And similarly, they excluded patients who, children who had very severe pneumonia, i.e. chest wall and drawing and respiratory rate and respiratory distress plus danger signs, meaning that they were super sick and definitely needed to be in the hospital. So we're looking at that sort of ambiguous middle category of pretty sick, but not quite so sick, Um, where this question of could you take them and administer their their therapy at home orally would become a a practical relevance. And so they they screened uh, something like 6,900 children, of which 2,100 were ultimately randomized. And they were randomized into these two groups. The first group was the home therapy group where they started therapy in the hospital, were then trained, or the mothers of the children were trained how to give oral amoxicillin twice a day to these children. And after they had done that for a couple of days, they were sent home um, to continue the therapy, um, you know, until they either improved, you know, were cured, or had a clinical deterioration. And then in the other arm, they were, they were the ones who were randomized to stay in the hospital, they received in, in intravenous ampicillin four times a day, as I recall. Just to clarify, the kids, the kids in the intervention arm went home right away. Uh, they went home right away. They didn't. They didn't stay for a couple of days. No. Okay, so they no, went no. home right away, and so it was. A, it was, you know, initially basically starting them on an outpatient oral therapy versus an inpatient intravenous therapy. And then um, they were followed at regular intervals at day three, six, and 14, but there were daily visits to, particularly in the outpatient setting, to make sure that the children who'd been sent home were okay. And if there were any problems, you know, if they were failing clinically, that they could then be brought into the hospital and they could step up the care. So that was the basic design of the study. And the primary outcome was treatment failure, um, meaning that um, either the child had very severe pneumonia and was not getting better um, or actually was getting worse. And there were a whole series of criteria about things that were getting worse, but they were sort of obvious things like they couldn't breathe or they couldn't eat or they were having seizures or they're becoming lethargic or the fever was getting, you know, persisting and higher. So they were all sort of like, you know, signs that the infection was not improving for whatever reason. And um, the question was, would be treatment failures differ in a substantial way between these two arms? And so this was designed as an equivalency study, meaning that the, the hypothesis is not that you know, the oral amoxicillin will be better than the IV ampicillin or vice versa, but that they will be essentially equivalent. Um, and yet, since this is a you know, the equivalence here is designed, defined statistically, we have to sort of, you know, apply like a limit, like when we say equivalent, how equivalent is equivalent enough? And that is the so-called delta factor, like, which is based on the confidence intervals around the difference in outcomes between these two groups. Um, and in a nutshell, what you found is that the two uh, were about the same. Um, they, they seemed very equivalent in terms of, of treatment failures. And so, yeah. uh, you know, um, the question asked and answered, can you treat or severe pneumonia at home with oral amoxicillin and achieve similar outcomes, it seems to be, yeah, you can. Yeah, very, very, very practical study. Well, thank yeah, you very much. Yeah, and, ba- and based on the results of this study and the prior study, um, the APIS study, we brought this information to the uh, World Health Organization and they convened an expert panel and they, in fact, did change the treatment guidelines for childhood pneumonia in developing areas based on this and a number of other studies that were also presented. Yeah, just a couple of points of clarification I would add. Just uh, so, so the idea of the study was essentially that we wanted to be able to figure out whether you could send these kids home uh, compared to the standard of care, which was keep them in the hospital, give them the injectable drugs. Uh, and as you say, the, the, the idea being we don't have to show one is better, better than the other. We just have to show they're equivalent. You wouldn't probably expect outcomes to be better by sending them home. But if you could show they're equivalent, then there's a whole bunch of benefits to not keeping these kids in the hospital. Uh, as you said, it was, a, it was an unblinded equivalency trial. So we had to, to meet some extra um, bars to, 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 because you know if we wanted to say two things were equivalent statistically, and if you define that as just not statistically significantly different, then That's you could cheating. just have a tiny study that would be right. cheating. So you actually cheating. have to have a bigger study. Um, and as you say, in the end, we found, we did find that equivalency. We defined equivalency as a confidence interval plus or minus 5%. So you've got to have a, a, a point estimate on a risk difference 
of almost zero, no difference in the failure rates, and a, and a pretty narrow confidence interval. Zero and plus or minus five percent. Plus or minus five percent. Yeah. Um, so Don, let me turn it over to you then. Good study or great study? <laughs> great study. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really a seminal. seminal. Uh, no, no, no. So in your in your careful rereading of this study, this what, where what, Thomas, line by line, I know you went through it. Thomas Kuhn actually had to append his book for the book. <laughs> say exhibit A, a, a structural paradigm has shifted. What? Uh, no, no, no. When you read through it, when you when you read when you read through this, what? So what do you? What's your critique of the study? If you were reading this as somebody who was not involved in the study, what would you say? Well, there's a couple of things, and and you know, I think I think um, in terms of doing the study, one of the real challenges was. Um, the, the classification of severe pneumonia because the, the definition is defined on this concept of lower chest wall end drawing, which is really the, the foundation of that classification. And the interpretation of lower chest wall end drawing is somewhat subjective. Um, it's not always there. And we did, a, uh, we did a, a, an extensive training of the study participants so that we could standardize what, in fact, was lower chest wall end drawing, because there's a gray zone and, and sometimes it's kind of a subjective call. And the problem is that both in terms of criteria for enrollment as well as criteria for the outcome, we had sort of a soft finding. And we were always quite worried about that. But the way we dealt with the former is we trained everybody, and 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 there were um, two people that were required to um, identify an individual as qualifying with lower chest wall drawing to be enrolled in the study. And then for every failure that occurred, there was a second um, study participant who actually observed the failure so that it was confirmed. It, it was wasn't confirmed. dependent on, on on just one observer. And I, I should clarify because I think the the our, our listeners will will ask the obvious question: Why don't you just do an X-ray or something like that, like we would do in the United States, mm. as opposed to this, you know, using this WHO definition? And and the point is that th this is a question that is relevant in a place like rural Pakistan and would not really be relevant at West Cambridge Pediatrics, where you could get an X-ray, right. or or even the tertiary care centers or, in or, Pakistan because right. they had access. They have X-rays and probably CT scans. Right. So this is really for the most rural, the most the end users, the most the, right. the so, first level facilities. So this this is using a, a clinical case definition, and the WHO came up with this criteria after many many years of research, um, and is one of the, the criteria that's used in the IMCI, the Integrated Management of Childhood Illness algorithms for identifying children who've got severe pneumonia, uh, and it, it is really only relevant in a place where you couldn't do these other tests. And so you're you know you're looking at chest wall and drawing, which is again a, a funny concept that. Our listeners will not understand what that means, but it's sort of like if you can imagine the lower chest kind of contracting in with each breath basically is a sign that the child is really struggling to breathe. Yeah, it, it, it paradoxically goes in the opposite direction as the rest of the chest, in part because the child's laboring to breathe, and in part because really young children, the bottom of the rib cage is not yet ossified. It's not mm. yet mineralized, so it's Ooh, more pliable. Wow. It's, you know, it's sort of all cartilage, so it's more pliable and it's, it's therefore easier to detect. So, and so you wouldn't see this in an adult, generally. Right. So can we get into this, uh, drill down a little deeper as to why this matters? So essentially what you're saying is we have a problem in that we could have misclassified kids as to whether or not they have pneumonia in At the beginning all. because uh, uh, some kids who are you know, experiencing these symptoms may not have pneumonia. We don't have chest x-ray to confirm it. Some of them may have pneumonia, but they have viral pneumonia, in which case antibiotics aren't going to do anything. Or asthma. And mm -hmm. then we have the outcome, which is subjective, whether or not these symptoms have disappeared. Why, why does it matter? <laughs> yeah, so I was going to talk about this after, but since we, we got to it earlier, I mean, one, one of the things, for example, that I noticed in your, in, your, in your table one describing the cohort was how many kids were Weezers. Weezers. And, and since I've got, band. I've got RSV on the brain, respiratory syncytial virus on the brain, I mean, the first thing I was thinking it's, it's, is like, it's a pulmonary disease, isn't it? It's some it sort of go on infection. Right. So RSV is a super common uh, lower respiratory tract infection in kids, and that often causes wheezing. And so this is exactly the point you're getting at, is that it's like RSV is a virus. If you gave amoxicillin or ampicillin to kids with a virus, it's going to make no difference whatsoever. Um, but but generally, so so you're essentially talking about a non-differential misclassification problem, misclassification right, right. of the the condition of the treatment failure that really probably shouldn't differ between arms. So right, that's generally true. we say, you know, if that happened, it should bias towards no effect. That's right. So why do we care? 
Well, it, it, we, we, we care in the sense that we can't generalize this to other settings where like maybe we would say you've done an x-ray and there's a big old socked in infiltrate on one side, lobar pneumonia. And we would say that is like, you know, pneumonia Boston style as opposed to pneumonia WHO style. And the implication of that, of that syndrome is very different potentially from whether children are breathing fast and have a bit of a cough and have chest wall and drawing who might not have pneumonia, but might actually just have RSV. See, I but, feel like I just lobbed you a softball and you chose not to swing at it. Oh. I was trying to get at the bias problem. Oh, yes. The okay. non-differential misclassification <laughs> would bias towards no effect. And this was an equivalency trial. And therefore would make it easier in to hands. You would be biasing in favor of, of equivalence, equivalence right? making two things look more similar. So let's say, for example, hypothetically, sending kids home is actually worse than keeping them in the hospital, but you have all this outcome misclassification that biases towards no effect. It, generally, that hurts you when you're dealing with superiority, but in this case, we're dealing with equivalence. That yeah, could have helped that's us. Very good point. Yep. And yep. you know that's something that we struggled with when we designed the study, and it's it's a criticism we were certainly open to. Don. Yeah. Let me let me just add a word about in defense of the WHO approach, um, which we purposefully worked right. with. We, you know, we, we could have done sort of a, a, a more pure, rigorous study by including chest actually, but that would have been um, poorly generalizable to the, to, it's the, irrelevant. to the place where we right. intend this to happen. But the WHO devised this, this um, diagnostic algorithm with the understanding that it, in fact, is going to be very nonspecific, but hopefully highly sensitive. And the idea behind that is that the children who are at most risk of dying are the children who have true bacterial pneumonia. Right. So you want to create a definition that's going to sweep in all of those kids who truly have bacterial pneumonia at the cost of also sweeping in kids that have asthma or have RSV or, or the other thing. So, so the benefit is hopefully you, you, you reduce the, the mortality for true bacterial pneumonia. And that the, the problem is, the, 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 the other side of the coin is that you overtreat a lot right. of children who don't have bacterial pneumonia and you develop antibiotic resistance. So it's, it's a real risk benefit kind of, a, kind of approach. But the, like you're saying, the penalty is not symmetrical. Like right. if you guess wrong and they didn't have pneumonia and gave them amoxicillin for three days, you know, it contributes to antibiotic resistance. A little bit. Like point. Zero 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 zero. And what are those? What are those units? Exactly. Significance units. On a planetary scale. Right. All right. Whereas if you if the kid did have pneumonia, you didn't treat him, that would be terrible. He might die. All right. So can I can I go back to some points? So I think we said earlier this was was an unblinded trial because. It is very difficult to blind kids as to whether or not they went home. But we've decided that blinding is irrelevant. You do not need to blind okay. trials because so, there's no risk of bias. Uh, we've decided that is not in any way true. <laughs> so does that mean is that a problem? It is a problem. And what's the, what do you what were you concerned about? Well, you, you know, if you, if you were. If you were the treating doc, yep. um, evaluating these kids and enrolling them into your study, and you've got two kids who roll in the door at the same time, and hypothetically, <laughs> yeah, and they uh, one looks a little sicker than the other, you might say, "Gee, I'd like." Oh, it that if definitely did not happen. I in the would study. really like it if that slightly sicker kid ended up in the hospital arm because that, I would feel a little that, more comfortable that about that. Absolutely did not happen. That has study. nothing to do with blinding, though. Uh, no, but it allows. It, it is means that there's no the blinding of the allocation might. Um, uh, well, the, well the I'm, getting into plus, uh, yeah, I'm getting into the blinding around there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm talking more about the fact that kids kids went home uh, or they stayed in the hospital and they knew whether or not they were at home or in the hospital. Does right. that? Do you think that could have influenced the way that the person determining whether or not the child is well at the end of the study went? Yes, because well, this is not really about blinding per se, but like if the, the, there's an ascertainment bias there, right? Because they're in the hospital, they got clinical staff around them all day long yeah. watching them. And they're being evaluated and, and formally every, every, every six hours. Every six hours. And so if the child starts to have anything happen, even if it's a transient anything, right. it's going to be spotted. Whereas those kids are at home and are only being seen like once a day. Once a day by a pediatrician by for a pediatrician. safety reasons largely, but, but not for necessarily outcome reasons. Right. So you would see, them, you would see a difference. You would see, a, a, like you would, a, I would predict you would see a higher rate of complications for the hospitalized children. And you do see that in your data because in the first three days when the, the you know, the kids who are in the ampicillin arm are, are in the hospital, but after those first three days, a lot of them were sent home. Yeah. And at that point, the two 
event rates, the you know the, the the emergence of adverse events or danger signs seems to equalize. Yeah, I and, agree. And maybe it's that they you know, the, the opposite phenomenon is going on here, but I think it's much more likely that you just now have symmetrical observation of these two kids. And that is the true event rate as seen by the outpatient arm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there's, there's definitely a potential for, we would, we would call it, I think we called it surveillance bias at the time or ascertainment bias. bias You're observing one group more than the other. And let's say sending kids home is worse, but you're missing some of those events you're picking them up in the hospital, that that could have balanced things out to no effect. Now, the argument against that would be um, that if kids are, you may be over-ascertaining in the, in the hospital. It may be that actually what's happening in the hospital is you're picking up things that really are going to resolve by the time you would have seen it later. And if you had looked at that same kid, not at every six hours, but you looked at them at, at 48 hours, the kid would be perfectly fine. And that's what you would have seen in the hospital, but still, that 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 ascertainment bias problem, I think, is 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 very real. And that would be true either of lower chest wall enduring or taking uh, taking the child's temperature, because you can have episodic sure. spikes of, a, right. of of fever during the during the day. And if there, if the home home group is being evaluated just once a day, then you're missing a bunch of opportunities to observe a failure. Yep. In yeah. essence. Yeah. Uh, so we've got we've got uh, lack of blinding as a potential problem here. We've got ascertainment surveillance bias, potentially ascertainment bias. Uh, we've got this potential for bias towards the null coming from the misclassification of the of both the entry criteria and the outcome. Um, the other thing we tend to think about in randomized trials is placebos. There was This was not a placebo-controlled trial. Does that matter? We never really entertained a placebo-controlled trial. I mean, you just ethically can't do that. Because it would be unethical, yeah. right. So I'm, just, I'm just going through the list here. Just right. go through the list here, but you couldn't you couldn't do a, a placebo control trial here, and you, nor would you want to. We have effective treatment. You wouldn't go against the standard of care treatment. One other thing, and I think we might get, be getting into this in the second segment, but um, the other potential problem besides surveillance bias is that there was misallocation, as Chris was alluding to in the emergency room of the kids coming in, i.e., that the study participants, I mean the the, the study members. Uh, study staff would evaluate a child in the emergency department and and decide that this child is just a little too sick. Well, they weren't supposed to do that. No, we obviously don't, and not. We don't know that they did that. But no, we, no, but this, but they, but, but they could you're, have. You're, you're, I'm, I'm you're, jumping you're ahead. Forced, you're jumping ahead here. You're jumping ahead, but, well, but, I, okay. but yeah, in, in part because Chris already brought up the issue of this in, the imbalance in Table One, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Yep, yep, we'll get we'll we'll, we'll get into that one. Okay, have, so so so. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you, do you think there could be like an, like an anti-placebo effect um, in that? Okay, so like... As opposed to an uncle placebo effect? <laughs> yeah, or, or, or a second cousin. <laughs> Go um, ahead. So, so, you know, in many, um, many patients uh, see injectable things as being stronger medicine. Yeah. And so there's a placebo effect around getting an injection. Um, you know, or taking a drug which has got some side effects, like the you know the old British Navy used to give the the the, the blue pill, which didn't do anything but made you get wicked diarrhea or vomit, and so it was you know the the the, the, the sailors could feel it working because it made them sick, and so it, like even though it was noxious, it made it a more effective placebo, ironically, because you could feel it working. Right, it was just causing harm. I want but, some of you know, that? Um, yeah, no, exactly. But Can you write me a prescription? So could there be like an, an anti-placebo effect where like knowing that you're Getting oral medicines would make you feel less confident that the child is going to improve. Yes, I suppose. Uh, and if that were the case, it would tend to make the the outpatient arm look a little worse, worse yeah. right? Which we didn't see. Which we didn't see, except that because of the asymmetric way that yeah. adverse events were being, you know, or outcomes were being assessed. It might have been that way, but you might have not, not known it. Yeah, I've always been curious, though, as to whether or not the placebo effect is a function, or how strongly the placebo effect exists as a function of age. Yeah. You know, these are little kids. Yeah, that's are a good they point. as susceptible to the placebo? Three to 59 months. Yeah, they probably Maybe they even... are, because maybe the mother is the one giving them the, the medication, and she somehow influences how the child is, is reacting. Or evaluated. So it's possible. I mean, I, I don't throw it out. Um, Okay, so I've got a couple of things I want to end on, but before I do, what's your so what's your overall assessment of the study? Yeah, uh, I think it makes the point that that uh, oral amoxicillin is a practical alternative to in you know uh, in, um, hospital ampicillin, and I'm surprised in a way because 
you know, the, the, the benefit of hospitalization is not just that you get a slightly higher concentration of penicillin in your bloodstream because you're injecting it, but because you've got access to respiratory tacks and x-rays and, you know, oxygen concentrators and suction devices and all these other things and people take your temperature yeah. and fuss over you and feed you. I mean, there's a lot of benefit to the hospital, but also risks to the hospital due to iatrogenic, i.e. hospital, you know, errors uh, that arise from yeah. being there. So I don't know. I, I was surprised that it worked as well, I guess. Don, what's your, what's your take home? Yeah, and my, These guys clowns? Yeah, as a matter of fact, they are. <laughs> we know that for a fact. No, one of the, one of the, the issues that has always um, disquieted me was the, really the, the question of what, what is the actual number of children in uh, a definition like this that have true bacterial pneumonia? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and if, in fact, it's a very small number, then we've proved nothing. But if in fact it's a substantial number, then then we we've proved something that is is actually useful. But let me let me just elaborate on that. And uh, the reason I say that is that there's a subsequent study that I've been involved in called the Perch Study, um, which is the um, uh, pediatric this etiology. Is that That's right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so pneumonia You're etiology. trying to scale up. <laughs> oh please. <laughs> Uh, I, feel, I feel like I just took that pill you were talking about. Uh, I can we, can we do, at some point, Nick, can we do a clip show in which we just have bits of Don and I moaning at Chris's, at bad, Chris's jokes. bad jokes? Yeah. Can we do yeah, that? I think that would be good. Yeah. Right. In any event, so in that study, where the enrollment criteria were identical to this study, and we did chest x-rays, and this was in seven sites throughout the globe, not including Pakistan, um, but very similar populations. Fifty percent of the children who uh, who came to the to, to the hospital um, had a positive chest X-ray, a chest X-ray indicative of an infiltrate. That infiltrate could mm. have been due to bronchiolitis from RSV, but a lot of them had true consolidation-looking infiltrates. They had pneumonia. So they had pneumonia, and so that that gave me a little bit of reassurance that in fact um, we weren't. We weren't doing a study on a very, very small number of children yeah. with true bacterial pneumonia. Yeah. That's a really good point. But I was going to say that that even the, even if the if the alternative had been true, even if you had just found you know that like ninety percent of these kids' X-rays were normal, and that most of this you know WHO severe pneumonia is in fact like viral you know syndromes, which the antibiotics are not going to help. Even that were true, it doesn't t- change the fact that the g- global standard for treating outpatient yeah. pneumonia is the WHO algorithm and the definition of severe pneumonia. So it is a practically relevant question to I, I ask agree with you on that and answer, yep. even so, because yep. it's the way things are being done. But it might justify further research into like, you know, do we need to treat severe pneumonia at all, um, given that so much of it is viral? Right. Yep. Uh, okay. So let me end with a with a couple of things that I noticed because this is this paper was in two thousand eight. Uh, I was a young lad then. I have gone back and Were you, before you got up on your P pulpit, mm, possibly. <laughs> P, P, he means P value, just to be clear. Oh. Chris had the look on Chris's face just now. It's like we, we this went, is like a recurring theme oh. on this podcast. It's like the P cast. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, one thing I noticed was we violated so many of my p- personal pet peeves in this that. article. So to start with, um, we say there's an appendix to this article. We say in the in the appendix, I, we made drew conclusions about differences between groups based on the fact that the p value was less than 0.001. <laughs> I say, and I'm sure either I wrote this or Bill McLeod wrote this. All analyses were done in SAS version 9.1. <laughs> Probably the Lancet editors demanded to know. I used logistic regression, which I really am not a fan of logistic regression. Um, We say in the appendix, we note that had the misclassification been non-differential, blah, 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 it would lead to bias towards the null, which I am constantly saying you shouldn't be using as a crutch. Uh, We make a policy statement in the opening paragraph of the discussion, which I hate. We say we therefore suggest the WHO recommendations need to be revised in light of these data. That's my bad. Not a big fan of that. Um, my and Kazi's. My and Kazi's. Yours and Kazi's. And uh, I am at least happy that I convinced everyone to use confidence intervals. And nowhere do I see us using the phrase studies have shown. Other than that, boy. Oof. Wow. Looking wow. back. Wow. Matt, yeah, you have times. evolved so I much. I know. It's a, it's a growing thing. All right. But, uh, you, know, the, 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 you know, science is messy. It is. It is so messy. It and, is. And this is like, and can you imagine, I can't imagine, this is kind of doing a study like this. 
so difficult. It is so difficult. I, difficult. I, my hat's off to you. I, I don't have a hat right now, but <laughs> if I was, I would take it off. Um, Headphones off. I would you. share shed some hair for you <laughs> for really? having done this. This is this and looks like, that much to give. like a really tough. Jeez. Tough project to have yeah. pulled off. Where do we so. send the check, Chris? Exactly. Uh, you, can send it, you can just slide, All right. it, slide it under the table. Let's move on. <laughs> so let's move on to our second segment. And in this segment, we want to talk about something that happens all the time in studies, which is you have some source of error, some source of bias in your study that you know about. You tried your best. You designed your study. You, you, you end up with some problem. What do you do about it? I don't know what you're talking about. My studies are free of bias. Obviously, that's why we didn't choose one of Chris's because there's nothing to pick apart. But in uh, Don and I seem to get picked have apart all the time. Studies that have all kinds of errors. So, what do you do about it? So, so let me ask you guys this question. Uh, so, Chris, say you've done a study and you've got some key variable that you know you measured with error, and the study's finished. You go to write up your results. What do you now do? <sighs> And so you, you realize after the, after the fact that the, the, there's some bias in your study and you're not quite sure whether you were reporting it right. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, so where, you where got do you the source of money. What do you do? Where do you, do you go do with you, that? Do well, you, you, you could do one of several things. You could throw up your hands and you say, oh, dear, we have bias and therefore our study may be wrong. And I don't think that's a very helpful thing to do. Okay. Or you could say, oh, dear, we have bias, as many studies do, probably most, possibly all. It sounds um, like you've got a pretty close relationship <laughs> to your colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> Did you do all your studies with your wife? Oh, oh dear. Oh. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Anyway, or, and, and, but then you say, okay, in which direction do we believe the bias has biased yeah. us? And therefore, in the absence of bias, what might it look like? Yeah. And so you, you, like what I would do, because I'm not a statistician or an epidemiologist, I would, I would sort of like say it would make our, our estimate slightly more conservative or slightly more optimistic depending on which way it was going and therefore the grain of salt is sprinkled in one direction mm. or the other. And you could do that in sort of a qualitative way. Mm. Uh, or you could be much more sophisticated, like some people I know. You could and, do it in a quantitative way. And do it in a quantitative but way. But hang on, but let me go back. So, so where does that? So, how does the reader of your study then know that you had this problem? Where? How do they find out well, about it? Well, there would be a limitation section in the, in the discussion that would say, "Our, despite the overwhelming brilliance of the rest <laughs> of the paper, the study in fact had one or two minor limitations, which were easily mitigated." Okay, and, and I'm just curious, <laughs> and I'm just so every so every study should have a limitation section which discusses these things where is the limitation section it's it's right before the recapitulation of the awesomeness section. it's the second <laughs> it's, the, it's the second to last paragraph that's true because, that's right. you, because you don't want to end you on a downer to, you it's depressing right. you don't right? want to bomb them out so you you go through your whole discussion telling you why everything's brilliant and wonderful and then you say oh but we had all these problems and anyway a, a, a truly a, a well-written limitation section should really be a an awesomeness section in disguise and then the, the, you know, I mean, so limitations probably theoretically should come first, right? I mean, but we don't do that. No, no, no. That's so we call, this, we call this the confessing your sins approach. Yeah. And there are, in fact, as you point out, there are ways that you can actually quantify the, the problem. So I'm bringing this up because in the no shot study. If you're really sneaky, what you do is you put the really big limitations in the appendix. That Ooh, is who would do that? <laughs> that uh, maybe, That's really sneaky. who would do that. That's, so 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 if you have uh, so so in the no shot study we had uh, a particular problem, one that we haven't actually talked about in the earlier segments. Don, can you sort of fill us in on what what the problem that we needed to address in the no shot study was? Right. So we, so we 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 bundled this whole thing up and we sent it off to the Lancet and um, it came back. Um, with, a, with um, one reviewer in particular who was the statistical reviewer pointing out um, this imbalance that Chris referred to previously in table can one. You, can you say more about what, what that was? Because Chris only sort of right. so alluded the, so to the, it. So the imbalance was that in the, in the hospitalized arm, there was an excess of diarrhea and vomiting. Um, and the comment on the, on the reviewer's part is, well, that seems to imply that those children who were found themselves in the, in the hospitalized arm we're sicker. We, when we submitted this initially, we thought, all right, that's not a big problem. True, true, not related, because these are not respiratory symptoms. So we just kind of glossed over it. And then the reviewers came, came comments came back, and they nailed us on this. And, and they basically said, it looks like you had, uh, you, had you, you know, your, your, your randomization was corrupted in some, in some way or another. Now, it could be the surveillance bias that we were talking about earlier. 
but it was uh, no because this was at baseline. This was before. Oh, that's true. This is before. Well, yes, yes, that's true. This is before. Um, so, so it was incumbent upon us to prove to the reviewer in our response that a it wasn't true, or b it was possibly true, but it didn't necessarily matter in terms of the conclusions. Yep. And that's where you came in, Matt. Yeah. So, so, so just to make it a little bit more concrete, so we we do this study. We randomized. A uh, thousand kids, roughly per arm, and that's a lot of kids. And you should expect that you get more or less baseline two groups that are the same. Mm-hmm. You should get two groups that look pretty equivalent. We had a lot of things looked pretty much the same. We didn't collect a ton of data, but what we had, we found that sixteen uh, percent of the kids in the hospital arm versus ten percent in the home arm were vomiting. Ten percent in the hospital arm versus five percent in the home arm had diarrhea, and those are those are some you know sort of strange differences. The, the statistical reviewer referred to them as alarming differences. Alarming, mm. um, notable, maybe not alarming. I didn't think they were alarming. Yeah, but it is it is a problem, and and it you know we noticed this when we put together the write up of our study. Some of us thought it was going to be a big problem. Some of us thought it would be perfectly fine because, as Don <laughs> says, these things are not related to uh, pneumonia or not related to respiratory disease, and therefore, you know, this shouldn't be a big deal. And, you know, it is theoretically possible that this was just bad luck, mm-hmm. that, that we did our randomization just fine and we just got something wonky. By chance. Mm-hmm. But the reviewer's concern was that, well, maybe you didn't actually do a great job with the randomization. And if you didn't do a great job with the randomization, what about all the other things that I have to trust you on, which is how well you measured the outcome or how well you measured the kids getting into the study in terms of their pneumonia? And so we had uh, we had a problem that we faced. We could have tried to just put this in the limitation section, but it was already in the limitation section at that point. Um, and I will be completely honest in saying I thought we were kind of done for yeah, at I this point. Yeah, I thought we were cooked. My, this, and this is, where, this is why I am constantly saying that I believe that randomized trials with some flaws are judged much more harshly than observational studies that are big but have lots of flaws because we, we have this expectation of randomized trials being it's perfection. Perfect. Yeah. And when they deviate from perfection, we are really harsh on them. Um, you know, these, there's clearly a problem here, but it's not a massive problem. But this this is something we had to deal with. So now I'm I apologize because I am going to get a little soapboxy here, <laughs> because this is my oh um, dear this is my this is my thing, uh, which is called quantitative bias analysis. That you can actually attempt to rather than just as you say, Chris, reason as to what the impact of the bias is. You can quantify it. So what we did was. We did a, a, several different things. One, we did what I would refer to as some sensitivity analyses where we, we just made some assumptions about, well, what if you know this was a problem with randomization and we got the randomization wrong? What if we flipped kids into some different groups based on these characteristics that we see that, that predict whether or not you were in one arm or the other? And let's see if it makes a difference. And it, it didn't make any difference. It didn't um, make a difference in terms of the outcome, right? In terms of the problem. Yeah, we were still we were within still, that 5%. And we were still equivalent. Still equivalent. Delta. Yeah. yeah. Um, then what we did was we did some statistical adjustment for the things that we measured. So we adjusted for the differences in diarrhea and vomiting and baseline characteristics. Again, it made no difference. Um, and so those, you know, that's sort of helpful, but the bigger problem I think you're worried about in these cases is what about the things that are either mismeasured or unmeasured or unmeasured. Mm -hmm. And there, Mm -hmm. you know, you're talking about misclassification, you're talking about unmeasured confounding. If we can make some reasonable assumptions about what the degree of, let's say in this case, misclassification is, then we can actually calculate given the data and the assumptions, what the data would have looked like if the classification if the classification had been perfect and the benefit to that over just reasoning is you can tell not just the expected direction of the correction but also the magnitude how much yeah in this case you would be worried so in this case what we observed in the results was equivalence but a slight 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 benefit towards being in the home arm over Mm. the hospital arm Mm -hmm. so what you're worried about is we misclassified people and we misclassified them in terms of their outcome more in one arm than the other to make things slightly, slightly, slightly better in the home arm when in fact it's actually worse in the home arm. Yeah. And so we looked at you know estimates of the sensitivity and specificity of these classification parameters and recalculated the estimates. And this is where I went from being really concerned to you know a, a bit more convinced that our results make sense is 
you, you could have extreme differences in terms of the sensitivity of the classification. You still don't flip the results into a strongly, in, into anything that would change your conclusions. In other words, the results go from slightly, 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 slightly protective, but really equivalent to slightly, 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 slightly harmful, but really equivalent. You know, a difference of maybe 1% protective or harmful, you're not going to change your conclusion based right. on that. You can, you can see how far you would have to go uh, with the bias yeah. before it has a before it matters. And you'd have to get to the point where one one group is perfectly classified and the other group is basically a coin flip right. before you'd ever get to the point of changing your conclusions. And this, right. I think, is, is really powerful um, and I think ultimately is what helped us to get this uh, published. And we did. We wrote this all up as an appendix. It is published with the paper, and you can go back and read this. And I think ultimately that's what got us there. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a really practical way you guys approached this, this problem, in fact, to say. I mean, it, I mean for, for the readers again, the, the listeners, excuse me, who are wondering why are we talking about this relatively old study about, you know, outpatient treatment of pneumonia in Pakistan, you know, there are very few of our listeners who will have read about this in the newspaper and wonder about this problem on a daily basis. The reason we're doing this study, we were talking about this study, is because it is such a good example of, of like the complexity of doing research, how all studies, including randomized trials, even ones that are very well done, uh, inevitably have methodological flaws. And not that, you know, not to sort of show like here is a, a perfect study, but here is a, a study where, you know, a sincere attempt was made to address all of these in the study design. And yet things still happen because the complexity of doing clinical yep. research is so yep. overwhelming. And it's not whether these problems will come up. It's really what you do when they come up and yep. how you mitigate that. And how do you quantify it and how do you, you know, justify your results? And I, I think that what you did was very pragmatic. Shucks. And, um, yeah, it's a good, good teaching example. And I will just make one plug before we move on, which is that we, uh, Tim Blash, Elisa Fink, and I wrote a textbook on these methods. You don't have to buy the book in order to go to our website and download the uh, free Excel, Microsoft Excel spreadsheet tools that we have to be able to do this with your own study. It does not, it's not complex. It's not complicated. You just need to have good information on what the, the plausible bias parameters are, and you can do this as well. Can you and get when, that on Amazon? I was going to say, Jeff Bezos, what is, where, can you help us with this? I do not know the answer to that, probably. All right. Well, let's move on to our third segment, our Amazing and Amusing, where we want to highlight some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more. Uh, look at the weird, wacky things that happen in our field or around our field and those things that inspire us. So, Chris, you look like you are not ready, so I, I'm going to pan over to Don. Sure. Don, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, so what I found was um, a paper that was published in Behavioral Processes, um, and it deals with animal behavior um, by researchers from the UK and Brazil. So it's Natalia Albuquerque from the University of Sao Paulo. Um, and the title of the paper is... Um, where is the title of the paper? Did it have a title? It did have a title, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, mouth licking, dog mouth licking in communication with angry what? humans. <laughs> what? <laughs> so, Wait a minute. Yeah. Dog mouth licking. Mouth licking. This right. is a real segue to my paper, by the way. Humans? This is really. This is. <laughs> It's <laughs> yeah, an oral fixation here. Who's looking who? So, so the way they set this up is they got they got fifteen dogs that were dogs from the families of the researchers and their colleagues, and they presented <laughs> to these dogs photographs, images of human beings that were had a happy look on their face and human beings that had an angry look on their face. Same thing with dogs. So a German shepherd that's like Mad. baring its teeth and a German shepherd that's like happy. <sighs> and then they also um, did a series of experiments where the dogs would only see those images and where they would see those images along with the similar auditory cues, like a dog growling or a human being yelling. And they found that when the dog was observing angry-looking images of humans, the amount of mouth-licking 
that the dog is mouth, licking, licking, licking its, its own mouth. Licking its own okay, mouth. Okay, I feel so much better <laughs> now that you've clarified what was so, being licked. So I don't know if you've uh, you've seen that, but but dogs when they get kind of anxious or when they feel like they're they being their mouth, they, they, like, they stick their tongue out and they they lick their snout, and it's sort of almost an act of submission on the part of the dog. So that they they discovered that there was like a forty percent increase <laughs> in dog mouth licking when the dog is looking at the a picture of an angry human being, not the same thing when it comes to looking at an angry German shepherd, not the same thing when listening to angry human beings or when listening to an angry sounding German shepherd. That is bizarre. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? So is the, is the, is the licking like a, an appeasement kind of behavior that they're trying to like defuse the well, angry uh, human uh, being? You know, a- any speculation as to what this actually means is pure conjecture, but they're 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 Never implying this. that this is a a means of the dog communicating to the human in a placating way to get the human to be less threatening, less angry. Wow. They should do the study in reverse. Yeah. Uh, okay, so just just a. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go to no. <laughs> Nope. No, don't go there. <laughs> I'm going to go on a tangent here for a second because the the Bruins, the bar hockey team, uh-huh. they, they do a lot of licking. They're in the playoffs. They were licking the Canucks after, or something. After, no, no, the, the Maple Leafs. Maple it Leafs, was, whatever. Uh, I got an alert on my phone after uh, the Game 7 win, which now dates this episode. Uh, Brad Marchant of the Bruins was told by the National Hockey League to stop licking players. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> It was, I swear, I swear this is what I saw on my phone. So I could have misread it, but that is what I saw. Stop doing that. Okay. So he's trying to placate the other players? While Chris does his, I'm going to actually look this up. I'm going to look this up. Chris, over to you. Oh my God. That is fantastic. Um, Brad, Brad Marchand. Brad Marchand. Well, I was, um, uh, <laughs> I was um, looking around for an interesting paper in the Proceedings of National Academies of Science again and, and found one by authors Ball... Devon and DeWright. This is a, a group of Dutch, and it's called the Matthew Effect in Science Funding. The, the what now? The Matthew <laughs> Effect. Uh, and this was published Sorry, in... Sorry, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you. Brad Marchand of Boston Bruins told by NHL to stop licking <laughs> opposing players. He should. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> why, why was he licking yes, opposing yeah. players? I don't know. That he appeared to lick the face of Leafs forward Leo... Kam- Kamarov in Boston's game one win over Toronto. Does he have a dog? I do not know. <laughs> Sorry. The Matthew effect. Let's get into that. That's, that's different than mouth licking. I, oh, that is true. I would hope so. Let's get uh, the Matthew effect. The Matthew I, effect. So I am, I, I am I, locked I in I had to here. look it up. I had to look it up. So the Matthew effect actually goes back to the Bible, to one of the Gospels. Oh, so I'll quote so a few. Matthew me. 25, 29. It says, For to everyone who has will, more be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So it's a, it's a way of saying the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what this is about. Except this is about science funding and about researchers. Ooh, yeah. Oh, I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Totally this agree. is a great one. Go and ahead. so it's like this phenomenon, like, you know, early success in your career tends to lead to more success and yeah. early failure leads to, you know, sort of stagnation of your career many times. And and so they wanted to sort of quantify this Matthew effect as opposed to like, you know, it's the popular wisdom. They wanted to actually get at it. Yeah. And they had this natural experiment, this killer natural experiment where like the NIH, they have these early and mid-career development awards, mm-hmm. except unlike the NIH, you are, you're, you were granted the award purely on the basis of your peer reviewer's score. So there's no like higher counsel that like adjusts and says, well, he got a great score, but we hate it and we're not going to fund it anyway. We're going to give the money to this guy with a lousy score. Here it's straight by the numbers. And so what they wanted to do was to look, to take advantage of this experiment where you have two early career researchers who applied for this award who got almost identical scores, but one was above the threshold and one was slightly below the threshold. Oh, we call that a regression discontinuity. It's a regression discontinuity analysis, exactly. Otherwise, they're, <sighs> they, you would say that they're basically the same, and statistically, those two scores do not differ. Oh my gosh, this is And then is they brilliant. followed their trajectory of their research careers, and boy, did it make a difference. Boy, did it make a difference. So when you looked at like, you know, their previous productivity, they were... <sighs> Basically identical. Their their subsequent product, product yeah, yeah. in fact, was almost 
basically identical. So it wasn't that these were, these were like gunners and superstars who were just like, you know, excellent researchers. They were about the same as the ones who didn't get the early career development grant. But when you looked 10 years, 15 years in advance in the future, the guys who'd gotten the, the early career development grants were far, far more likely to get the mid-career development grants and were 50% more likely to become full professors than the other, other ones. And their total research funding within 10 years that was about $300,000, 300,000 euros higher than the ones who had, had not Wow. So you get so one shot and you shouldn't blow it. Well, that... It's, that, your, first, it's your first K award. The, it was very important. It turns out this is very important. But the, the other part of this was that they, they looked not just at the probability of getting this mere career development grant as sort of like the next capstone of your career, but also the, the application rates were much lower. So the ones who had failed early seemed to kind of like disincentivize and give up and stop trying to submit for the grant. So their, their, their application rates also plummet. That oh, is interesting. So, so there's not a, bias in the system necessarily. It's there's incentive. Some, there's some it's incentive that goes into this. Yeah. And it's like, you know, researchers get discouraged early on and then they're, 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 their careers stall, and then it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. Whereas, in the opposite, they get that early career, to, you know, grants. It gives them kudos. Their chairs yeah. are very happy. You know, their deans are like blah blah, blah writing them up on the website. Yeah. And and suddenly they're like superstars, and all the manna from heaven starts to come down from them, just like in the Gospels. That is. It's such a great paper. It's fantastic. I mean, it's both a. a a really interesting message, but a, what a fantastic uh, use of, of data and analytics. Yeah, I wish I could show this, Ooh. but like this, this is That's the, good. This it's is alarming, the one that's though. Boom. I find it really alarming. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's like... That's a great it's, teaching it's, example, too. And if you look at like, you know, across the spectrum is not, you, you also have the people whose scores were much higher or much lower. Yeah. But within the ones who like were much higher, but were above the threshold, compared with the guys who were just above the threshold, they're... Um, productivity is not different. And so it's like a step function. Yep. You know, it's not, it's not a graded productivity. It's all or nothing in terms of that early boost. It's, that, ra- it's, it's really a really great study. It's rigged. It's rigged. Really interesting. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it rang true. I was like, yeah, I I can see that. Okay, so uh, for mine, I want to ask you guys a question. When you guys write scientific articles. Ghostwrite them. When you write your own scientific articles, right. you're writing up your introduction. Do you cite your own work? Yes. <laughs> I'm the only one who does. <laughs> I try to avoid it. I come up with creative ways of citing everything. Okay. <laughs> oh, he's gonna he's okay. gonna fall right into this. Okay. Uh-oh. So Uh-oh. for those of us not in the for those of you not in the field, getting citations for your work obviously makes your work uh, seem. More valuable. More important. The more citations. It's one of the things that people use as a promotion criteria. How many citations does your work have? It's a sign that your work is, is important. So this was a study uh, in the American Sociological Association Journal. Is that what it is? It's by, well, anyway. Um, the title of the article, uh, it, sorry, it's written by Molly King and colleagues. And the title of the article is Men Set Their Own Sights High. Sites spelled C-I-T-E-S. Men Set Their Own Sights High, Gender and Self-Citation Across Fields and Over Time. And I, this came to my attention from a Washington uh, Post Wonk Blog article uh, that pointed me to this. And the idea was that they went, so you, now you have you know, journal articles, you often get them through these large online uh, journal repositories. So one of them is called JSTOR, and JSTOR has got you know, articles and articles and articles going back from forever. And they went in and looked at the database of JSTOR articles published between 1779 and 2011. And they looked at all the articles. Can, can you imagine writing an article with a quill pen? Could you imagine having to, if you had to read through every article? <laughs> Forsooth. <Looked> at, <laughs> so they went to every article and looked at the author, you know, whether the author cited themselves in their work. Oh. And what like, they, like Chris Gill. Like Chris Gill does. Or are they more like the Don Thea who doesn't? And what they found was that um, about 10% of all citations are self-citations. Chris is nodding. He Sounds believes that. Right. He, he thinks that's a little, little low for him. And what they found was if you just looked in the last two decades of data, men self-cited 70% more than women. 
And this is obviously a, a problem because if this is indeed being used as a criteria for promotion, self-citation would be one way to get yourself more citations. And so why are the women not some, doing it? I, I don't know the answer to that question or why do men do it is the other question you could ask. But it, it's, I just found it quite fascinating and an amazing use of available data. And it does get me to one of my uh, – so as you guys know, I use this – podcast as my therapy session to get out all my pet peeves. <laughs> One of my other pet peeves in life or in work life is I really, really don't like when people cite themselves and refer to themselves in the third person. Oh, yes. So Chris Gill writes an article and says, Gill et al. found. <laughs> it really, really annoys me. Just say, kind of just say we did this study right, and right. we found. I'm here in the first person. Refer all to me right. in the first person. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so... That, I just found that one fascinating. You know, you know it's funny because I've only ever written one paper, which was um, BMJ Open 2011, uh, Gil and Gil. Um, <laughs> no, I, actually, there was only one person on the... I've only written one paper where I was the only author on the paper. Everything uh -huh. else, I've like, you know, lots of co-authors. Yep. And, and uh, I remember going through the reviewers, and the reviewers objected to my use of the first... Uh, of saying I uh, saying of I. We? They said, you should say we. I'm like, why should <laughs> I say we? we? There was only I. There was no we. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episodes or you want to suggest a topic or a study for us to take on, you can tweet us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Chris at at ID.Gill or Don at DTheo1. Or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning, who uh, couldn't make it today, but we still want to give her a shout out. And Nick Guler for the hours and hours and hours of sound and editing that he has to do on these podcasts. Clean up these podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you download our next episode. <laughs>